Bibles, please turn to the 11th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 11. We'll be picking it up in verse 11 this morning. The case that Paul is building in Romans is to be able to say that there is nothing that can stop God from justifying the ungodly. And so we have to see God's hardening of sinners in their unbelief and giving them over to their desires, as he talked about in Romans 1, as he's been talking specifically about doing to Israel here, in their rejection of Jesus, we have to see that in God's overall purpose for it, in light of His amazing grace. God has come to us in Christ to give forgiveness to us, to all of us. And since He is not just mighty as the omnipotent Creator, but as a Savior, He can and will overcome the worst in us. This is the power of Christ for us, in whom all the promises of God, especially this one, find their yes and amen. Let me pray, and we'll look at the passage together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would control my mind and my mouth for the sake of Your name, that I might preach Your Word, that I might preach Christ crucified for sinners, And not myself, Father. I pray, Lord, that You would watch over the hearer of which I am also a part. That we might submit to Your Word and receive it with humility because it is able and intends to save us. So help us all, Father, in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 11. So I ask, Paul writes, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Again, that's a very strange evangelistic strategy. The question becomes here for Paul, does God's act of giving Israel a spirit of stupor in verse 8, which we looked at two weeks ago, and darkening their eyes in verse 9, That because they pursued their own righteousness, He caused them to stumble here in verse 11. Does that mean that God's point in doing all of that, He did it so they would fall, they would be eternally condemned in this passage? Absolutely not, Paul says. God caused them to stumble so that they would be saved. That's what it was going to take. Going to the Gentiles for salvation is just the tip of the iceberg in God's strategy to save Israelites. He means to make them so jealous that they will once again hunger for God's salvation. That's what he's doing. That strategy has been working for 2,000 years now. Just this morning there's a report that uh, the Greek Orthodox Church in Israel was attempting to meet and have their Sabbath celebration and uh, the military came in to break it up and keep it from happening because as I talked about a couple weeks ago, they are trying to pass legislation that would make it illegal to share the gospel at all. So the idea of Jesus as Savior, even of Gentiles, is provoking jealousy. And the reason for that is their salvation. Let us have what the Gentiles have. Right? He means to make them so jealous they'll once again hunger for Him. Through their, through Israel's trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as, he says, to bring about their salvation. God knows that Israel will be provoked to jealousy when they see what they thought was only theirs by right being given to Gentiles for free. 
This will also cause them to question their belief that they really can obtain their own righteousness. Since if the gospel is true, God's approval and blessing does clearly come through grace and grace alone. We learned that back in verse 6. So here in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This proves that God's favor and blessing are not something to be taken lightly or easily forgotten and discarded. In God's sovereign power and providence, the trespass of Israel means riches for the world. God's promise to bless all nations through the physical descendants of Abraham encompasses even their trespasses as a means to that end. What is too powerful for God that it can undo his purpose is really what the issue is here. If the failure of Israel means riches for the formerly separated and far off Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples, then what really is Israel's failure but a tool in God's hand to bring about his promise for everyone? If Israel's trespasses and failures benefit the world, imagine what their full inclusion will mean. That is, when believing Israelites are made a part of his people once more with no reservations. If the trespasses and failures of Israel mean that Gentiles will be saved, then the benefit of also gathering in wayward Israelites to make the one new man in Christ is almost incomprehensible. How great is God's salvation? What sin can it not conquer? What hard heart can it not soften? Verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So Paul stops talking to his Jewish opponents in Rome to speak to his Gentile adherents in Rome. They too are sinners who, just because they agree or benefit uh, benefit with Paul's point about the nature of God's promises, it doesn't mean they fully understand everything and all of its implications. Human beings from Adam do not naturally default to the right conclusions about God's truth. We, just as much as Israel, have the tendency to believe that we've been blessed or given advantages by God, any that we have been given, because of something to do with us. That's natural. God does this for me because I'm doing things for Him and He likes me. And so that's kind of how we tend to live. Here the idea, after all this talk of Israel's sin and failure and self-righteousness, has the potential, because of our hearts and the sin in them, to make us as Gentiles conclude that maybe we're a little bit better than Israel. And that is why God confounded them to save us. That is not the point of Paul's teaching at all. In the middle of 13, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul is revealing the place of his Gentile ministry in God's plan and why he's so faithful to it. He's telling the Gentiles believer in Rome, believers in Rome that he speaks the way that he does about his kinsmen according to the flesh, not because God has discarded them and no longer loves them, but because he is submitting himself to the will of God, that God's strategy for Israel's salvation will work. That's what that, that Paul is saying. That's why I'm talking like this. Think back to chapter 9 when this section began, verses 1 through 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul makes 
much of this truth about Israel because he trusts that this is the means by which God will draw many Israelites back to him for salvation. Paul says, I talk like this because I believe God that this is the only thing that will work for my kinsmen to return and believe. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Reiterating the thought from verse 12. The power of God to draw even rebellious Jewish people who have been hardened by God because they sought their own righteousness by works. The power of God to draw them to salvation by grace through faith means that God is truly powerful enough to save all sinners, even the most blind. So in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. God's selection of Israel out of the world to be the vessel through which he would bring Abraham's promised seed to bless all the nations with his gracious promise made Israel holy among the nations. That is set apart from among the nations for God's purpose. Holiness is set apartness. Israel was like dough. In God's recipe for the world's salvation, Paul says here in 16. That's what he started with that would make all of it. All that God did through them for his purpose, then all that he did was holy. It was all in accord with his purpose for the whole world. Even Israel's hardening is a part of God's purpose for all the nations. When seen in that light, even that work is holy to God. Also, it helps achieve his overall purpose. Saying in another way, as he does here, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So individual Israelites in the world were also holy then in the sense that God had set them apart for his purpose of bringing the Messiah into the world. But in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, that's unbelieving Jews. And you, although a wild olive shoot, believing Gentiles, not a branch like Israel, but a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others. And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Israel, through whom Christ came into the world. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So, believing Gentiles are the effect. They are not the root of God's plan in the world. Believing Israelites are. We are not branches of that original holy root. We are more like wild olive shoots that have been grafted into the tree of God's purpose by this mighty power of God's grace we keep reading about and the amazing things he's able to accomplish. We don't take from all this that's happened for our benefit that we're better than the Israelites or more favored because unlike them, we didn't pursue righteousness by works. Yes, we did. We all do. That's what humanity does. Israel's specific pursuit of salvation by works is set before us as the illustration of how we all will try to justify ourselves. When we read their story, that amazing exodus, the point is, even if God graciously and powerfully delivers us like he did Israel from Egypt, we will by nature still believe that we must earn his acceptance through our works and keep his favor by our works that's why Israel went astray. That's why God hardened them. That's what Paul has been saying precisely. Through this, God will show the world in Christ through their specific rejection of Him and His salvation. 
God will show the world in Christ, the Israelite. Israel reduced to one, in a sense. That He only justifies the ungodly by His amazing grace. To quote my friend from a long time ago, Thank God I'm a sinner, or Jesus wouldn't have come for me. That is our role as Gentiles in all of this. To show that the power of God can not only restore branches that were broken off for unbelief, but He can also graft wild olive shoots that aren't even a natural or original part of it onto His one vine. So no one on God's vine is second rate. No one. They're all there by the power of God. The same power that works in one works in another. It's God's vine. The point in all this, God's selection and hardening and salvation of Jews and His grafting in of Gentiles into His one vine on the earth is to magnify His grace and glory as a Savior. Look how mighty God is to save. Verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. To the Gentile believer who maybe won't see Paul's line of thought in his previous argument, but instead says something in verse 19, like God must have thought so highly of me as a Gentile that wasn't as rebellious as all those Israelites, that he broke off some of those branches just so that he could put me onto it. And Paul says, yes, it's true, the branches that were broken off had that happen because of their unbelief. That's correct. Unbelief gets an Israelite broken off of the vine. But what that is, the misunderstanding and arrogant Gentile who thinks like that is missing is the fact that the means by which he or she is on the vine in the first place is faith, not works. And what do we know about faith in Romans? Faith that justifies the ungodly is purely a gift received by grace and has nothing to do with one's works or merits. All the way back in 3.24 and following. Even if they didn't sin in the same way that unbelieving Jews did, but they also did. If the means by which you stand fast in the vine is the gift of God, if He put you on it, if He's keeping you on it, if He's nourishing you and you're growing, what in the world would you be proud of in yourself? What is there to brag about? What is there to feel a little bit better than someone else about, which every Christian struggles with, especially when the world gets more irrational and more evil? We end up praying like the Pharisee did way back, I think, in Luke 18. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that miserable sinner over there. Right? You can credit God for your righteousness and still be arrogant and proud and misunderstanding. Just like that man was. And he did not go back to his house justified. Remember that. The man who couldn't even look up to heaven but only beat his chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He goes home justified. And the only one that goes home justified. How in the world could one see oneself as over or more righteous than an unbelieving Jewish person specifically in this passage? Do not become proud. There's no reason for that. You have no basis for that. But fear, he says. Right? Stand in the proper amount of awe 
That's what fear means here. And with the proper amount of respect for God that He gave us the grace to believe and be grafted in or we wouldn't be anywhere near the vine, much less on it. God didn't break them off and put us on because we're better than them or more inclined to the right beliefs than they are, but because He is gracious to sinners who cannot save themselves. No matter the reason, there is no excuse and no place for looking down our noses at other people in the house of God or in the world. There's no reason for it. We have no basis for it. The best moral person that exists in our church has no basis for looking down their nose at anyone who is unbelieving. That's not to be our response to sin. Let it grieve us. Let us weep that God is being dishonored, that people are being hurt. But to think that we're better than people or feel assurance because we're not like other people, is that the basis of our assurance? Well, I know I'm not as bad as them, so surely I'm not as bad off before God as they are. Beloved, the same Christ covers all. That is the whole point of Romans, of the Gospel. God doesn't give gifts to the deserving, but to the undeserving. When you hear Jesus say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, you better agree with Him that you're a sinner. Because if you say, I'm righteous, He didn't come for you, but for sinners. Verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. So, should you come to believe you are in Christ by any other means than the gift of faith? That's what he means here. If Jewish branches, the ones naturally springing out of the vine God planted in the world, if they can be cut off of the vine, know that wild olive shoots that were unnatural and grafted in can be taken off just as easily. Faith in God is so out of character with the flesh. It's so alien and supernatural and so obviously a gift given to us that didn't come from us Faith doesn't even take credit for itself. We say, thank God for Jesus, not thank God for my faith. Again, there's nothing more unchristlike or unbiblical than a Christian with a snotty attitude towards believers or towards unbelievers or struggling believers. There's nothing more out of step with the gospel than to be arrogant and proud in light of it. Nothing is more out of step with it. Not only would there not even be a vine in the first place, but for God's grace, the wild olive shoots grafted onto it, Gentile believers, that is. We certainly have nothing to become arrogant about. Verse 21 implies about verse 20 that without faith in God to do all the saving work by His grace and not by works, no one will escape judgment. No one. Verse 22, note then, He's writing to Christians. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, which would be the result of His grace. Not our works and effort for which we could take credit and miss the whole point. That's not continuing in His kindness. That's continuing in self-assurance. The believer must stay in constant recognition of the fact that we are on the vine because of God's kindness. 
not because we deserve or will ever be able to earn the right to be on the vine. No matter how long we live well, no matter how hard we try. Otherwise, so note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. That is not an empty threat. It's not a hypothetical. Why were unbelieving Israelites, the natural branches, what got them cut off of the vine? Unbelief. They pursued righteousness by works without faith. That's chapter 10, verse 3. So their belief was in themselves, not in the God of grace that brought them out of Egypt. This is not an empty promise. To deny Christ as necessary for all our forgiveness and righteousness is to get cut off. Cut off. It's not that you were never on it. It's to be cut off of it. That's an important distinction to make. If we ever come to the place where we believe that we stand in Christ because of ourselves and not 100% by grace through faith alone, we have denied the faith. And no one without faith will be saved. That's not controversial. That's Bible. Beloved, this is God's law. The law says to us in Romans 11.22 that if we deny the faith, we will be cut off. For the person who professes Christ then, but refuses to live in acknowledgement of their own ongoing sin and constant need of repentance, but thinks instead that they are doing okay and pulling enough of their own weight that God must certainly be most pleased with them, you right now need to hear the law and let it do what it does and kill you, or you are going to die. Arrogant Christians are an oxymoron. If you believe your salvation is 99.99999 repeating percent grace, but 0.0000001% of your effort and will, you will be cut off. Note not only God's kindness in salvation, but His severity in condemnation. He means it. Forgiveness is not for the unrepentant. So you'd better repent of your faith in yourself and believe that you can do something to stay on the vine. I pray that if you are a presumptuous, self-centered, arrogant Christian, you will be broken by this word and it will run you to Christ but to you who struggle with the fact that you can't quit sinning to you who hear that and get afraid whose conscience this word of law convicts and makes restless and hopeless and afraid you have nothing to worry about nothing that is faith that's faith it's faith to believe and to know that if we have to keep ourselves on the vine by the law, we will never stay on the vine. So when you hear the law, it's crushing you. It's doing its function. And you're saying, please, God, help me. Please, God, help me. Then this doesn't apply to you. You will not be cut off. 
you be at peace. Because the law has not been laid down for the just, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1. And just is what you are. When the only hope you have is for Jesus to be merciful to you with His blood and righteousness. How long can some Christians go being carnal and nasty and mean and rude and toxic and filled with gossip and nonsense and sin and never repent, never publicly repent for the damage they've done, never feel shame, always think they're right? How long do you think God will put up with you? Especially when what you do destroys His church. How long do you think God is going to mess with you and Jesus is going to let you continue to hurt His bride? You think Jesus is a bad husband? You think God is a bad father? You think He doesn't know the schemes you run? You think He doesn't know what you say when you think no one else is listening but those whom you want to? You had better repent. You had better repent. The letter of the law is for you, arrogant believer, in your self-righteousness. That you might be crushed by the fact that there's no way you're as righteous as you think you are. There isn't. You aren't. Repent. Israel couldn't even keep itself on the vine, and it was natural. Who do we think we are? Verse 23, And even they, unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. And there it is. There it is. So, we had the law in 22. Now hear the gospel in 23. Even if your belief is right now actually in yourself. Even if you are self-righteous and arrogant and unrepentant, God still has mercy for you. Turn and repent. If you do not continue in your unbelief, which is what belief in ourselves for something before God actually is, it's unbelief in God. If you don't continue in that, He has the power to take you and graft you back in again. And you don't need to go through steps to become like that and then repent. Repent of it. And be at peace. God is able even to take those unbelieving Jewish people whom He hardened and blinded and has made jealous. He's able to take them and graft them lovingly and mercifully back into His one vine in His grace. He can do that. He can do that. Even they, He says in verse 23, even the hardest hearts, even the hardest hearts, Verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, now speaking to unbelieving, self-righteous Gentiles who may be denying the faith by their arrogance and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, God's olive tree that exists and grows by His grace, how much more will these, the natural branches, believing Jews, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, this is the issue here. The power and grace of God in salvation. He who is mighty to save even the hardest, most hardened, jealous, most self-righteous, most arrogant, the farthest away, Jew or Gentile. That's the point here. If wild olive branches that have been grafted onto a tree 
from which they didn't naturally sprout can be put onto the vine. If they can be, how much more can God graft natural branches like believing Jews back on to his olive tree? The point here in the immediate context is that hardened, jealous, self-righteous, angry, unbelieving Israelites can most certainly still be saved. And God desires to save them, still holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people we learned back in 1021. His provocation of them to jealousy by saving Gentiles is not to push them away finally and for eternity, but to draw them back in where they belong. After all, they were there first. Let them back on the vine. Do you remember when the prodigal son returned home in Luke 15? And his brother was jealous. Remember the context of that parable. That Jesus is responding to Pharisees and scribes who were angry that he was eating and drinking with sinners. They are the jealous older brother. And at the end of those three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. Does the father tell the older brother who is jealous that he's done all this work and hasn't had his feast and his party? You haven't prepared the fatted calf for me. You haven't brought me a robe and a ring and all this stuff. How does the father treat that jealous older brother? He entreats him to come in. Why are you out here? Why are you standing out here mad? Come in. You're my son too. Come in for the feast. The Gentile believers in Rome must not look down on their Jewish brothers and sisters, not even those that are disagreeing with Paul at that present time. Don't look down on them. And for us, who probably don't struggle so much with looking down on Jewish people for their unbelief, right? I doubt that's really a major thing. But we do think highly of ourselves. This is the necessity of keeping the grace of God front and center. At the very top, over everything, shaping everything, informing everything. Because without it. And the minute you start griping that you hear too much grace, you're, you're in trouble. The minute we get like that, we are in danger of denying the faith, denying our need for Christ. That's what he calls that. And being cut off. Now, no one sins their way out of salvation. You can't lose your salvation like that. You can't lose it because you struggle with sin. And no singular sin is so great for a believer to commit that God will cut them off the vine if they do that sin. No, 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 no. But if we deny the need for Christ, which, no, again, no one would say that. Paul's naysayers weren't saying that in Rome. His outright opponents and enemies in Galatia weren't saying that. They weren't saying you need to deny Christ and embrace the law. Nobody says that, and that's not the problem. The problem is mixing them as a means of being made righteous before God. That's the problem. And Paul says to them, you have fallen from grace if you do that. Not because you've sinned too much or lost your salvation. You've denied the need for Christ and the need for faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So don't stop believing. That's apostasy. That's apostasy. And we're in very dangerous territory when we start thinking, I need something more than grace. 
I get it. It's, it's amazing that we can say it like that. I get it. I'm a sinner. Christ died for me. Excuse me. I didn't mean to give you mediocre news. So again, to the self-righteous this morning, the one assured because you think you're good enough or you're better than others, hear what the Word says about you and let it scare you to death. Some of you haven't felt conviction in a very long time. And if I were you, I'd be running to repent. You can just persist in pure anti-Christian words and attitudes and behaviors and thoughts and not care. You're only noting the kindness of God, not His severity. He's not to be played with. So you have no grounds for assurance this morning if you are an unrepentant person. None. None. Again, unrepentant believer is another unbiblical oxymoron. The life of faith is the life of repentance. I don't sin that much. You just added a lie. But to the broken and terrified believer or unbeliever that realizes in this moment, I can't make myself right with this God. To you who know if God doesn't do all of it, we're hopeless and will never have salvation. May you Dear brother or sister, may you have all the assurance in the universe. For God doesn't break bruised reeds. Arrogant branches, oh, he cuts those off and throws those into the fire. But even this word of law this morning is meant to drive all of us to Christ, not to perdition. To Christ. Repent. Repent. Break before Him. Come believing for Him to do it all. None of us is good enough. None of us has any reason to be arrogant. We don't have time to be arrogant. We fall short of His glory so much every day, every moment, that if He wasn't mighty to save and forgive, even the wildest branches, none would be saved. But He is. He is. This is all about God's power. The one who is mighty to save. Jesus says to us through the Holy Spirit by the hand of Paul. No one is too far gone for him. No one. Not even you. You're still alive. Which means God is being merciful to you. So receive his grace. It is for you. 